This is the guy, the night sky in April 2009, the International Year of Astronomy. My name is Nick Lom. I'm curator of astronomy at Sydney Observatory. This podcast is available through the Sydney Observatory blog, www.sydneyobservatory.com slash blog, and it's always available at the beginning of each month. We'll start off the podcast by talking about the stars of the night sky and then we'll consider what planets are visible and what other activities are happening during the months. So to start off, to make use of this podcast, it's a good idea to download the star map that's available through this website, the monthly sky map, print it out. Of course, you can get more detailed information and monthly star maps from our publication, The Australian Sky Guide, which I produce each year for Sydney Observatory and is published by Powerhouse Publishing. It has a bargain price of uh, only $16.95. You can buy it personally from uh, Powerhouse Museum, Sydney Observatory, also from good bookstores. You can also order it online, there is an additional postage fee uh, from uh, www.powerhousemuseum.com slash publishing or directly from the blog uh, www.sydneyobservatory.com slash blog and there is a banner on the top right uh, which takes you directly to the order form for the Australian Sky Guide. Also equip yourself with a torch with a red light. The advantage of a red light is that it does not wreck your adaptation to the dark to the night sky. So you can look at the map and the piece of paper as well as looking up into the sky without having to wait for your eyes to adapt to the darkness once again. Also make yourself familiar with the cardinal directions north, south, east and west. East is, of course, where the sun rises. West is the direction where the sun sets. And, of course, by April, um, it can start becoming a little bit cool. So uh, dress suitably and go outside. Sit yourself down comfortably and listen to this podcast. We'll start off our tour of the April stars by facing north. And we will see, of course, the familiar sight of the constellation of Orion on our left, in the northwest. Orion is always visible during Australian summer evenings. It is easily recognisable as it's made up of four stars in a rectangle with three stars in a row in the middle. And the three stars in the middle represent Orion's belt. Just above the belt, there is a line of uh, three faint stars, and the middle one is the great nebula of Orion. Those three stars represent the dagger of Orion, or the sword of Orion. Now, it's a little bit odd that Orion, the giant Orion of Greek mythology, wears his sword above his belt. The reason is, of course, that 
Orion was named from the Northern Hemisphere. So when we look at Orion, we actually see Orion upside down. So Orion's dagger is uh, above the belt. The middle slightly fuzzy star that we can just see with the unaided eye is the Great Nebula in Orion. That's the nearest large star forming region to us. It is about 1500 light years away from us. So light has taken about 1500 years to reach us from the Great Nebula in Orion. The Great Nebula in Orion is one of the more interesting objects to look at through a small telescope because through a small telescope we can see a bit of fuzziness but we can see four stars in a somewhat distorted rectangle in the middle. Those four stars are very young stars referred to as the trapezium stars and the fuzziness around them are the gas and dust out of which new stars are forming. When astronomers look at the nebula with large telescopes and with special telescopes sensitive to infrared radiation then they can see hundreds of new stars in formation inside the huge cloud of gas and dust that forms uh, the Great Nebula in Orion. If we then use Orion as a signpost to find other objects in the night sky, so if you move to the right of Orion, that is further towards the east, then a little bit lower down, we see two bright stars close together. They're almost due north in the early evening. And those two stars are the two brightest stars of the constellation of Gemini, the twins. The top one is a star called Pollux, and the lower one is a star called Castor. Pollux is a star that's fairly close to us, 34 light years away. It's a giant, slightly reddish star with its surface temperature, about 4,500 degrees, which makes it a little bit cooler than our own sun. Our own sun has a surface temperature around 5,500 degrees. And it's a giant star. Its width is about 10 or 11 times as much as that of our own sun. Now, Castor is a very interesting object. Castor is the layer of the two stars. It is 51 light years away, so a little bit further than Pollock, so the two stars are not actually related to each other. They just happen to fly roughly in the same direction. But to the unaided eye, Castor appears like one star. But if you look at it through a telescope, it is made up of two stars. And the two stars circling around each other, taking about 460 years. To do so. But there is a third faint reddish star as well visible, though that is not quite as obvious as the other two. So, so far we have Castor as a triple star, three objects circling around each other. But in fact, when astronomers examine each of the three stars in more detail, they find that each of them is a double star. They cannot be seen separate, so we cannot look at any of those three stars and see them as separate. They can only be noticed when the velocities of the objects are measured. And when the velocities are measured by, by astronomers using a device called a spectroscope, they can actually see that the objects' velocities are such that sometimes they're coming towards us, sometimes they're moving away from us. 
In other words, that they are circling, that each of those three stars is a double star, a spectroscopic double star. So Castor, even though we look at it with the unaided eye, it looks like one object, it's actually six stars. So when we look at this one pinpoint of light in the sky with our eyes, we're actually seeing six stars in that direction, which is uh, quite amazing to note. Of course, those two stars, Pollux and Castor, are very obvious stars, and there are legends associated with them. And according to the legend from the ancient Greeks, that they protected sailors and especially the ship Argo which travelled to retrieve the Golden Fleece and they were always protected by these two stars, Pollux and Castor. Let's go further towards the right, towards the east and we reach the star Regulus. Now, Regulus lies on the ecliptic. This is the path taken by all the planets and the sun and the moon as they move across the sky during the year. So it lies in the ecliptic which means it's quite regularly covered by the moon. When uh, the moon covers a star that is called an occultation and Regulus is quite often occulted by the moon. Regulus is the brightest star in the constellation of Leo the Lion. It is relatively close to us. It has a distance of 77 light years. The name Regulus means the little king. The rest of the stars of Leo the Lion are quite faint so it's really it can be quite difficult to make out the constellation but uh, Regulus is fairly easy to find so Regulus is the easiest way of finding the whole constellation of Leo the Lion. The star is fairly bright it's puts out something like 140 times or intrinsically bright it doesn't appear that particularly bright in our sky but it's intrinsically fairly bright and it puts out 140 times as much energy as our own sun it has a mass three and a half times that of our own sun it has a companion so it is a double star but that companion is quite a long way away from the main star of Regulus, something like uh, 100 times as far away uh, from Regulus as the dwarf planet Pluto is from the Sun. And because it's so far away, the companion takes a long time to circle Regulus and it takes 130,000 years. So it's a long time. Nobody has actually seen that companion star to Regulus uh, complete one circuit. So we'll have a long wait to actually see the companion star to Regulus complete one circuit. Now if you go further towards the east, further towards the right, and almost due east, and in fact basically we need to face due east, we find the star Spica. And the star Spica again lies on the ecliptic, very close to the ecliptic, the line traced out by the sun and the moon and the planets as they move across the sky. So again, Spica is often occulted, covered by the moon. Spica is intrinsically very bright. It's 260 light years from us, so because it's reasonably far from us, it appears fairly bright in our sky, but not as bright as it actually is. 
impact. It puts out over 2,000 times as much energy as our own sun. Spica, as I said, is in the eastern sky. One way of finding Spica is to look for a group of uh, four stars which form sort of a twisted rectangle in the sky. And these are the stars of the constellation of Corvus, the crow. And if you extend two of the stars of Corvus directly downwards, we reach Spica. So that is the easiest way to be sure that we are looking at, at the star Spica. The sun tends to uh, pass Spica in the Northern Hemisphere autumn or in the Southern Hemisphere spring. But because it passes in the North Hemisphere autumn at harvest time, the name of Spica means ear of wheat. So it is a star that's always associated with harvesting. If you look at Spica, it appears like one star, at least we look at it in one eye. And even through a telescope, it appears like one star. But through a spectroscope, through a device that astronomers use, that breaks light up into its components and can measure the velocities of stars. We, or at least astronomers, can determine that Spica is made up of two stars that are circling around each other very rapidly um, because they're fairly close together and they take just over four days to complete one circuit um, of each other. So they circle around each other every four days. Because they're so close, they're actually distorted so the shape of the stars is not a nice round globe that we always imagine stars to be but their shape would be something like that of a football so as they circling around each other each four days we're seeing that those two footballs are different from different aspects and we actually see a slight variation in brightness of the star spica during the four days uh, due to this change in uh, the aspect of uh, the football shapes uh, that we can see during the four-day periods that they uh, circle around each other. Now let us move in our uh, tour of the April night sky. Let us move to the southern part of the sky. So let us change direction and look south. High up in the southeast, we can see the constellation of the Southern Cross, and. Southern Cross is, of course, a very obvious constellation in the night sky and with great significance in Australia. It is, um, it is on the Australian flag, it is on delivery of uh, several airlines and numerous other firms use the Southern Cross as part of their logo. So it is very much recognisable in Australia. But to be sure that we are looking at the Southern Cross and not the False Cross, which is somewhat higher up in the sky, in the Southern Sky, we can always tell the Southern Cross that it's fairly compact, there are four bright stars fairly close together, and there are two stars below which point up to them, which are the two pointer stars. The two pointer stars are Alpha and Beta Centauri. To allow one of the two pointers, called Alpha Centauri, is the star or the star system that is closest to us. Light left Alpha Centauri four and a quarter years ago, or four and a third years ago, and it's reaching us today. It is a star system. If you look at uh, 
Alpha Centauri through a small telescope. It's a very spectacular double star, two stars close together in the field of view of the telescope. In fact, uh, at least to me, the two through a telescope, Alpha Centauri um, appears like a pair of car headlights in the distance with two lights close together. There's actually a third star in the system, but that is out of the field of view for a small telescope. It is a fairly faint star, it's rather hard to see, in fact it's probably only noticeable um, by careful study of uh, actual images of uh, that part of the sky, night sky. And that third star is circling around the other two and its current state of its path around the other two, it is slightly closer to us and that's why it's the star that's called Proxima Centauri. So Proxima Centauri is the closest star to us, but the closest star system is Alpha Centauri, because the Proxima is part of that same system. Above them, as we discussed, we find the bright stars of the Southern Cross. If we take the topmost star of the Southern Cross and the one on the right, we extend them, we reach to the right, extend a line joining those two stars to the right, towards the west, we reach a bright star called Canopus, and that's almost overhead, very high up in the southern sky. And Canopus is the second brightest star in the sky after Sirius. It is a star that's uh, 312 light years away from us. And it is because it appears so bright, even at that large distance, so we can tell that it is intrinsically very bright. Uh, astronomers have established that it gives off around 10,000 times as much energy as our own sun. And it's a very large star, 100 times the width of our own sun. The name Canopus comes from the name of a pilot of a fleet in ancient Greek times which was sailing back from Troy after the battle for Troy according to ancient Greek legends and the name of the pilot was Canopus and it seems that uh, the fleet called into the port of Alexandria in Egypt and Canopus died at that port and this was a place where Canopus was just visible above the horizon. So the star was named after Canopus, the pilot of the Greek fleet. Canopus is the brightest star in the constellation of Carina, the keel. And the keel refers to that of Argo Nevis, the ship. Argo Nevis was once a large constellation in that part of the sky, but then it was broken up into three. Carina, uh, Vila, the sails, and Pupis, which is the stern, the stern of the ship. The Milky Way passes through the northeastern part of uh, those three constellations and contains many interesting clusters of stars and nebulae, sort of fuzzy objects in the night sky. The most famous of these is an object called Eta. Kirinai. This is a nebula, surrounding nebula or fuzziness, large cloud of gas and dust, 
surrounding a star also called Eta Carinae, Eta of the constellation of Carina the Keel. And Eta Carinae is one of the largest stars that we know about in the night sky. It is uh, at least 350 times the mass of our own sun. It is famous because in the 1830s and the 1840s it experienced an outburst and suddenly became very much brighter than it had been previously. It actually became the second brightest star in the night sky. It became brighter than Canopus and was only fainter than Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Now Sirius is nine light years away. Eta Carinae is 7,500 light years away. So it was actually intrinsically extremely bright, suddenly became intrinsically extremely bright to appear almost as bright as Sirius in the night sky. During the outburst in the 1830s, 1840s, it threw out a lot of dust and that dust has formed a cocoon of dust around the star and hides it from our view and that is why the star has become very much fainter than, uh, than it was back uh, in the 1830s, 1840s. But intrinsically it's still bright but it's the dust cloud, the dust cocoon surrounding it that uh, hides it from our view. Infrared radiation still is uh, transmitted through the dust or in fact by the heated dust creates its own infrared radiation and uh, Eta Carina is the brightest uh, source of infrared heat radiation in the night sky. It's a very famous and spectacular image by the Hubble Space Telescope of this cocoon of dust surrounding the star and it looks like a brain, like the two halves of a brain as the two, two hemispheres uh, of the dust cocoon surrounding this, uh, this star. In recent times, astronom astronomers have determined that it's not one star, but it's two massive stars uh, circling around each other. So Eta Carinae is uh, not just one very massive star, but two massive stars circling around each other. And it is believed that there are two stars, one somewhere around just over 100 times as much as massive as, the, as our own sun, and the other one being a little bit less than 100 times as, uh, as much mass as our own sun. And the two massive stars circle around each other roughly every five years. As these stars are so massive, they're believed to be near the end of their life, life cycles. So Eta Carinae is the best candidate we have for a star to go supernova, for it to explode at the end of its lifetime. As light as takes 7,500 light years or 7,500 years to reach us from, uh, uh, from Eta Carinae, it's quite possible that uh, the star has in fact, or one of the two stars, have exploded at the end of its uh, lifetime and uh, created a supernova. It's something we do not know until the light actually reaches us. But it certainly is a prime candidate to be a supernova sometime between now and the next 10, 20,000 years. If it does become a supernova, it will become very, very spectacular 
and not only become the brightest object in the night sky, rivaling probably even the brightness of the moon, but it will be visible during daylight for months on end. In the evenings, the only planet that's visible is the planet Saturn, and that's in the northeastern sky in the constellation of Leo the Lion. On the 7th of April, 7th of the month, the gibbous moon will be above and to the right of the planet. So that will be something to look out for. There are three planets visible in the morning sky. So people who do, do rise in the early have, can see three planets during the month. You can see Venus, Mars and Jupiter all in the eastern sky. On the morning of 23rd of April, um, we'll have a very spectacular sight. The crescent moon will be near the bright planet Venus, and near Venus is also the planet Mars. So we'll have a slightly twisted version of the smiley in the sky that we had back on the 1st of December 2008. A slightly twisted version with Venus and Mars forming the ice and the crescent moon forming a slightly twisted mouse. April will be an exciting time in the International Year of Astronomy. It's basically the most active part of the international year, even though there are events scattered throughout the year. On the beginning of April forms um, the 100 hours of astronomy around the world there will be non-stop astronomy events from the 2nd to the 5th of April during the 100 hours of astronomy. There will be continuous webcasts from observatories around the world, there will be telescope viewings from amateur astronomy groups and be special events at places like the observatory and planetariums around the country. In New South Wales, the excitement of the 100 hours of astronomy will continue the National Trust Heritage Festival which is from the 4th to the 19th of April and again there will be events in different suburbs and organised by councils around the state involving astronomy and there will be um, star viewings with amateur astronomers, talks and uh, numerous other events uh, talking about astronomy and history of, uh, of individual places scattered around the state uh, between the 4th and the 19th of April. This completes the guide to the night sky in April 2009. It's available through the Sydney Observatory blog www.sydneyobservatory.com slash blog. My name is Nick Lom. I'm Curator of Astronomy at Sydney Observatory.